good to be with you today as we continue in this kind of recap mini-series of the book of Romans. Once again this morning in Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 6, the new way of the Spirit part 2. And as Paul is writing to the church at Rome, he has told them that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Instead, that he is eagerly obliged to it. For the gospel is the power of salvation revealed. It is the wrath of God revealed against the sinfulness of men who by their sinfulness suppress the truth. It is the righteousness of God being revealed and making propitiation, literally in paying the price for us, ransoming back His people and purchasing their lives with the lifeblood of His Son in order that the one who is just may also, while remaining just, be the justifier. For Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as something that was much more valuable than belief. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as the very righteousness of God. What you see here is the power of God on display in the Gospel. Not the power of faith. The power of God through faith. For faith is not powerful in itself. There are many people that believe many things that come to no good end. Instead, the power lies in the one in whom our faith is placed. For He is faithful to do all that He said that He would do. So, having been justified through the gift of faith that was given to us by God, we rejoice. We literally boast in the hope of God for we were dead. Born in the image of our father Adam from dust and to dust, but in Christ we live. As we've seen last week, and we'll look again today, in Christ we die. Do you know your identity? Because it has everything to do with life and death. Paul speaks of it as being the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not a baptism by water, but a baptism by the Spirit and fire. For those who have been baptized with Christ, or those that have put on Christ and been enveloped into Christ, they have died with Christ. They have been buried with Christ. They are risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. A new life which is both Slave language and love language. Obedience to the standard of God. But obedience that comes from the heart. Because God has an enslavement to righteousness that is unlike any other enslavement that has ever existed. What a profound identity it is to be captured unto something from the heart. Life from death. The greatest miracle that has ever occurred calling into existence that which did not exist. And so Paul says, speaking of this identity in chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Last week, we took 
a moment, more than a moment, we took a couple of moments to consider the profoundness of marriage as it is described in the Word of God. Marriage is strong stuff. In Ephesians chapter 5, we find that marriage is the testimony of the bridegroom and the bride. It is the testimony of Christ and His church when we are joined together with a portion of the Spirit in our union between ourselves and our spouses. We are giving testimony. We are speaking to what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like when the king takes a bride for himself. Marriage is powerful stuff. And yet Paul tells us point blank that there is something that is more powerful than the testimony of human marriage. There's something stronger than the marriage that is signified by the ring on your left hand. There's something that is able to bring it to an end. And that is death itself. Because the reality... The reality of reality. The reality of real. When you've got one thing that is so profound, even in its testifying, when the reality to which it testifies arise, the testimony ceases when it is replaced by that which it speaks to. Now in Hebrews... It's referred to as a shadow and a copy. It's a shadow. And anytime you find something that is casting a shadow, if you will follow the shadow back far enough to get to the point where it becomes the reality that is casting the shadow, the shadow ceases. And it is replaced by the fullness of that which it speaks. When the reality comes, the testimony disappears. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the church there in chapter 5, verse 8, and he said it this way, Yes, we are of good courage. We're of good courage, Mount Zion. We're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. When we go to be with our betrothed, the earthly testimony will cease. Paul says, she's bound by the law as long as they're both alive. There's something stronger than the earthly testimony. There's something that will bring it to an end. And that thing is death that brings us to the fullness of the testimony of seeing Christ face to face. Guys, in here in the very heart of the book of Romans, and we're right smack in the middle. Here in the heart of the book of Romans, Paul cannot get away from the concept of Christian death. He started all the way back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 12, we covered it about a month ago. In chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin... He's explaining the gospel. This is why you need to be saved. There's something that you need to be saved from, and here it is, that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Ever since making that statement, Paul has been fixated on the concept of death in the Gospel. It's not a pleasant concept, but it is an essential one. 
Scripture tells us death is necessary. Death is necessary for at least three things here in the context of Romans chapter 6 and 7. First of all, death is necessary for justice. And we're talking about a Savior who is both just and the justifier. He's not just justifier and He's not just just. Can you say just that many times in one sentence? He is not just the justifier. He is not just just. He is both. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we are told that the wage of sin is death. This is the prescription of justice unto the sinner. It is not simply the outcome, but it is the very wage itself. It is that what is owed to those who are marked by their sin. It's literally yours by right. It may not be a right that any of us want, but it is a reality nonetheless. And this is not just a general statement about the nature of all mankind. But it can be made generally about all mankind because it applies specifically to each of us personally. You can look at a lot of different places, but I think Ezekiel chapter 18 is probably the best reference where you see the, the personal side of this wage being owed to the sinner. If God is going to be just, then what has to happen is death must come. Death must come to those who are guilty. He says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? So the Lord speaks to the prophet. And he says, listen, there is a proverb. There is a saying. There is something that is commonly spoken amongst the people of Israel. And I want to know what you think you mean when you say it. Because here it is. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Pretty straightforward concept. The fathers did something that they shouldn't have done. I'll be honest with you. I'm a, if you ever ate a sour, I mean a really sour grape on accident, got a hold of one. A really bad green grape is almost as bad as getting a hold of a green persimmon. I'm a grape tester. I will unabashedly, makes my wife really nervous when I do it, right? Especially if they're not any good and then I don't buy them. I will unabashedly walk up to the produce stand, pop a grape out, grape out of the bag and taste it. That's why the bags are open, right? That's why they're not shut. You notice they're always open because, man, I'm not paying six bucks or whatever the current inflated rate is for a bag of grapes. It's not any good. I want to test them first. Eating a sour grape's a bad idea. What does it do? Man, it locks you up. Your jaws lock up, the inside of your cheeks wrinkle up, your mouth goes dry. Not a pleasant experience. Set your teeth on edge. And so here's the proverb. The fathers did something that was ill-advised. But because they did something that was ill-advised, the negative effect is being visited upon the children. And so, so here's this proverb that that is spoken amongst Israel. I want to know what you mean by it. The fathers ate sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. And so the Lord's going to line them out. He's going to correct their doctrine. He's going to correct their theology. And this is what He says. As I live, declares the Lord. He is speaking 
of himself as being the standard for truth that is now about to come out of his mouth. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so here's God saying, I'm swearing by myself, by my own good character. I'm telling you what the truth is. And it is not that the fathers have erred and the children are going to pay the price. Instead, here's the truth. Every single soul belongs to me. Just let's get that right out on the table first. Before anything else, I am your creator, I am your sustainer, I am your God. Every one of you belong to me. Now, belonging to me, here's what you need to understand. Here's the judgment call. Here is justice being declared. The wages of sin is death. The day you eat, you shall surely die. Every soul who sins shall die. The gospel does not nullify the faithfulness of God. The gospel proves the faithfulness of God. If he says that every soul that sins dies, then friends, every soul that sins dies. Death is necessary for judgment. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was not only a condition for Adam, this was an event. I would have you note that Christ is our substitute. Amen? And Christ is our substitute for sacrifice. Christ is our substitute for receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. Christ is our substitute in propitiation. We spent a whole Sunday looking specifically at this, that His lifeblood paid the debt for yours and mine. Substitutionary sacrifice. Christ is our substitute for so many things. But let me tell you something. Christ is not a substitute for justice. Christ is not a substitute for justice. Because Christ is justice. That's who He is. This time of year we often read, as a matter of fact we will on on Christmas Eve, we often read out of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 5. Speaking of our Lord, the prophet writes and says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now listen to how it describes him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be a belt for his waist 
and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Christ is our substitutionary sacrifice. He is our propitiation. He is the substitute that took the wrath of God that was supposed to be poured out on Brian Williams and on you and took it upon himself, but he is not the substitute for justice. He is justice. He is both just and the justifier. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ doesn't let you off the hook. That's not what the gospel is for. The gospel isn't to let you off the hook so justice won't be served and somehow you are the lucky enough one that you didn't get what was coming to you. That's not what the gospel is. It is not the subversion of justice. Christ doesn't subvert the law. Christ fulfills the law. It's what He said Himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill the law and the prophets. One of those prophets, of which is Ezekiel, of which the Lord said, What do you think you mean by saying this proverb that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? I'm telling you, every soul belongs to Me. And the soul who sins dies. Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. This is what I came to do. I came to fulfill all that was written in the Law and the Prophets. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the Law until all is accomplished. And so our conclusion can only be thus. Because our justifier is just. And He has laid out the expectation of justice. If Jesus truly came to fulfill the Law, then what Christ does in the Gospel must result in our death. Or He's not fulfilling the law and the prophets. In His crucifixion, we did surely die. It is Gospel. It is good news. But it's not just that death is necessary for justice. Because if that was it, if that was the end of the story, if it was just that, hey, listen, death is necessary for justice. God said, here's the standard of justice. I own you. If you sin, you're going to die. And Jesus came to fulfill the law. So, buddy, guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to lay you in your grave. If that was it, you couldn't call it gospel. At least not from a human perspective. Because it wouldn't be good news for us. It would be bad news for us. But death is necessary for more than justice. Death is necessary for resurrection. You can't rise from the dead unless you're dead. That's the only way. It is a necessary prerequisite. These things are mutually inclusive. You cannot have a resurrection unless you first have a death. First and foremost, the foundation of our being. The bedrock of what it means to be a human, a living being, is not the jar of clay. The foundation of our being, first and foremost, is our soul. And Scripture says, it has been united, if you're a Christian, with Christ in His death in order, this is the good news, 
that it may also be united with Him in His resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, just a just not even a full chapter back, in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Paul said it this way, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of Life. One of the things that you'll find out as you begin to dive into the depths of the glories of God as He's revealing Himself in Scripture is that you have a tendency to get excited and happy at all of the places that the natural man would think is weird for being excited and happy. Man, Paul gets fixated on death starting in chapter 5, verse 12, and he just hangs with it, hangs with it, hangs with it. And people go, man, why would you ride that horse so hard? Here's why. Because having been joined with Him and buried with Him in His death, so too will you be raised with Him. There is very real, practical application here. Guys, this isn't just kind of the high ivory tower theology. Man, this is of critical importance for evangelism, this is of critical importance for seeing men and women and boys and girls being born again. As a matter of fact, if, if, if I mean, Paul's not... Getting a letter across the known world in the first century was not an easy task. The Holy Spirit is not a trick pony. So when Paul endeavors to do something as difficult as get this letter to Rome and the Holy Spirit inspires him to do so, everything that's included is there for a critical reason. Critical reason. Practically, the reality of us being buried with Christ in the baptism, not of water, but of the Holy Spirit and with fire, that miracle of the Spirit that in context of Romans chapter 7 is similar to the miracle by which the two are made one flesh. That miracle provides the means by which our salvation can actually be realized in this life. It provides the platform which by which I can stand up here and you can go out and you can speak to your colleagues and to your friends and to strangers in the parking lot and tell them you can come to Christ and you can be saved and you can be born again is all tied up in this concept that the soul that sins must die and the manner in which you can be saved is not only that you will be resurrected with Christ, but you'll be resurrected with Him because you died and were buried with Him. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, the author of Hebrews says it this way, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, critical statement, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, all souls are mine, the soul that sins will die, not just the body, the soul that sins will die, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And so, here's the truth. Christ is returning. 
Truth number one, Christ is returning. Truth number two, it's appointed for a man to die once, and following that comes the judgment. Death, judgment. Christ is returning. But listen, when the judge who is just, who said the wage of sin is death, and that the soul that sins must die, when he gets here, he's not coming to deal with sin. He's already done that. Instead, he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, the soul that sins must die. I'm a sinner. I'm a Christian. I'm eagerly waiting for Christ. But when Christ comes, he will come not to deal with my sin, but to save me, even though he's just and his justice says the soul that sin must die. How does that work? He can do this in righteousness. You can hold on to this truth, saints, that when Christ comes, he won't be coming to deal with your sin because he's already come to do that. But instead, is coming to save you who are eagerly awaiting for him. He can do this in righteousness. He can justify you and remain just because He already dealt with justice the first time. The flow works like this. If our soul had not been previously crucified with Christ, but instead died simultaneously with our body, the result would be no time for repentance because it is appointed for a man to die once. And then comes the judgment. After the fullness of death, the fullness of death. There is nothing left but the judgment of God if sin is going to be dealt with. It must be dealt with before then. Or you better believe. Friends, listen to me. I, I, I have no issue. I have no issue Man, our God is to be feared. Man, when Peter preached the gospel at Pentecost, those people were scared out of their mind. They said, what shall we do? Let me tell you, friends, when the fullness of death comes, when it's the whole bit, when the whole trinity of your existence has died, when it comes, then what's left is the judgment of God. Please hear me. Sin better be dealt with before then. It needs to be dealt with now. It better be dealt with before then. And because for those that are called according to His grace, they have been buried in the baptism of the Holy Spirit with Christ and that they have died with Christ, the time for repentance is at hand. You look at Adam as an example. He was judged when he fell, but he was not judged fully. Judgment continued over the course of his entire life. It's exactly what God told him would happen. It will be by the sweat of your brow that you earn your bread, and then what will happen? It will eventually come to its consummation. For dust you came, until dust you shall return. Final judgment and its conclusion came at Adam's death. Because we die with Christ, the soul of the saint is a new creation, resurrected before the death of the body that leads to the resurrection of the body. Let me tell you something. If the foundational reality of your being is your soul, 
if God slays it and resurrects it, then you better believe the jar of clay that it came with will get the same treatment. This is not just philosophy of doctrine. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in verses 8 through 11. By the time he gets done with this thought, in chapter 8, verse 8, he says this, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you, you Christians, who were buried with Christ in death, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And if you are born again, if you have been baptized into Christ, if you have been plunged into Christ, if you've been enveloped into Christ by the Holy Spirit, then your spirit, your soul lives because of Him that dwells in you. And if that is the case, being the foundational reality of your being, so too will your body be resurrected. Therefore, because this is true, For the elect, there is time for repentance. Friends, that time is now. Time is now. Now is the time to seek. Now is the time to find. Now is the time to ask. In Luke chapter 18, in verse 1 through 8, we see a parable that shows this reality in action. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Man, sometimes, sometimes it's easy for a human to lose heart. In the circumstances, though varying in intensity, by which humans lose heart are always exactly the same. I have a certain expectation. I have a certain hope. I have a certain idea that I am looking to come to fruition. And yet, no matter what I do or seemingly how long I wait, it doesn't happen. And eventually, as it doesn't happen, I lose heart. And I lose my passion and I lose my hope. Now, some people either by the nature of their constitution, the particular sanctification of the Lord that has already taken place. Some people, you know, some tires wear better than others, right? Some people can just just gut it out longer. But the reality is of whether or not you lose heart quickly or you lose heart slowly. The flesh is weak. And if you leave it up to the flesh, you'll always come down to it. And so, he tells them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. 
These two things go hand in hand. Not losing heart and constantly crying out to God. He said to them, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, this because she's wearing me out, man. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect, those who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Okay. Here's the parable. Break it down real quick. You've got an unrighteous judge and you've got the righteous judge. You've got a man that's more concerned with his own things and God that is righteously concerned with his own things and they're all good. And here you've got this widow and she comes to him and she wants justice for against her adversary. We have no idea what the story is. It doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, is the judge has no concern for her. Probably because she's not of any value to him and he's an unrighteous judge. And so he just blows her off and says, leave me alone. But finally it becomes more trouble than it's worth. And she just keeps coming and coming and coming and says, man, she's wearing me out. I'm going to give her justice. Even though he's not really a just guy. I'm going to give her justice just so she will leave me alone. Anyone that has ever worked in retail knows exactly what Christ is talking about. <laughs> right? Just give them what they want. He says, okay, unrighteous judge. Now let's consider, he says, pay attention to what this guy says. It's important. Listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Big deal. Now let's talk about the righteous judge. This guy's unjust. And he will give her what is just. Just to get her to stop bugging. Consider your Father in Heaven who is just and the justifier. Will He not surely... If you can get an unrighteous man to give you justice, how certain is the fact that a righteous God will give it to you? Now look, human experience and the reality of God's truth often seem to be in conflict with each other. Because on one hand, he says, will he not surely give them speedily that which they ask for? Those elect who cry day and night. Our expectation of what speedily is and God's expectation of what speedily is not necessarily the same thing. Because when you're the elect crying day and night, day and night, it often doesn't feel speedily. I assure you that when Daniel lied sick in bed for 21 days, it didn't feel like it was coming swiftly. It's a good thing that truth is not defined by the relative experiences of men, but is instead defined by 
by a God who is righteous and says, buddy, if you can get justice out of that rock, how much more certainly will you get it from me? These are His elect. They cry day and night. There is an opportunity to cry. And they will be heard. Not that they might be heard. They will be heard. Man, you go to Revelation chapter 5 and 6 and you see the souls that have been martyred for their testimony that are sitting at the foot of the, of the throne and they say, How long, O Lord? Listen, man, the answer is coming speedily. It doesn't seem speedily to them. They want, they're, they're in, they want to know how long. He says, just a little bit longer. You better guarantee He will answer. The fact that we were joined with Christ in His death and burial is the means by which we have the opportunity to call out to God before the judgment seat that we may be bound to Him in His resurrection. Death is necessary. It's necessary in the Gospel. Death is necessary for the justice of God. Death is necessary for resurrection. But furthermore, death is necessary for relationship with Christ. You want to talk about the bridegroom and the bride? It has often been said, and I think in light of this rightfully so, it has often been said for hundreds of years, been pointed out by theologians that are writing on the subject of marriage, that there is nothing more sanctifying than marriage. That it will cause you to put to death the flesh if it's done correctly more than any other endeavor than you can engage in on this side of the judgment seat of Christ. Makes perfect sense. Because Paul makes it very clear that when it comes to us as the bride and Christ as our bridegroom, death is not only necessary for justice, death is not only necessary for resurrection, death is necessary for relationship. The body of sin, that which once controlled us, has been brought to nothing by the new creation. Now, those of us who used to be slaves to sin and disobedience have become slaves to obedience from the heart, the very desire of the new creation ruling in us. Death is necessary for relationship because saints are slaves, no doubt. But we are much more than the shallow, fleshly view of slavery that is common in this world. Instead, Paul says this, Romans chapter 7, verse 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ. And when you were joined with Him in the baptism of the Holy Spirit into His death and burial, you died to something. You died to the law. Likewise, my brother, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not of the old way of the written 
Or as Paul said so famously in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God I am what I am. Grace is a miracle. It's a miracle that requires in some manner that I don't even understand the Holy Spirit joining us to Christ in His death that we may be joined with Him in His resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 and 10, Paul said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. Dying with Christ works. Causes us to live with Him. Man, Paul tells us what we were. In Romans chapter 7, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's who we were. Man, we were the kind of people that because our passion, because our heart was bent towards sin, the only thing that the law proved to do for us was give us a checklist of more sin that we could tick off. And we're out there going about our business according to the passions of our flesh. And we get the law and we find out there's all sorts of sin that we didn't even know about. Well, man, now we got a lot more stuff to do. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Man, there was a time in my life where if you wanted to make sure that I crossed the fence, the best thing to put on it was a no trespassing sign. Made me wonder what was back there. That's not what we've become. And it was so ingrained in us, what it took was an execution. And the only way to get away from that law was to die. In verse seven or 6, But we are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What we were in the passions of our flesh was so depraved that when we got the law, we used it as a primer for making us better sinners. We used the truth of God, as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, to suppress the truth. We used it to perfect our iniquity. But not anymore. Now we've been freed from it. Man, we were bound to it. We were bound to it by the heart. We couldn't get away from our own passion. We weren't enslaved from without. We were enslaved from within. And it was enslavement that was going to lead to death. We're free. How? We died. We died to the law. We died according to the sentence of the law. That the soul who sins will die. Galatians chapter 2 in verse 19, Paul says it like this, For through the law, I died to the law. Man, that thing held up the standard. I failed it, and the sentence was death. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We read those words and we think he's talking poetically. He's not talking poetically. Every time Paul speaks about this, it's always in the indicative. It is not subjective. Paul says, this is what happened. It is a spiritual reality by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. This is not turning over a new leaf. This is not driving a stake. This is not a new resolution. It's not a rededication or a recommitment. What you see here is someone dropping dead that they may live again. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, when a sentence of death is executed, you indeed died to that which executed you. If you're down at Cummins on death row and they execute the sentence, you die to the state of Arkansas. You know why? Because you're dead. And having died, they don't take you back to the cell because you died. They take you to the morgue. It's finished. It's complete. The sentence has been executed and as far as the state of Arkansas is concerned you have paid the price Paul said through the law I died to the law the sentence was death and God could have given it to me as a death of judgment but in Christ he gave it to me as a death of mercy that is the good news of the Gospel that leads to repentance and to the resurrection of the dead. Through the just decree of God, we were crucified with Christ and in doing so, He released us from the law that sentenced us not unto our own recognizance, but instead to belong to another belong to God by grace. That Paul says we may serve in a new way, not by the written code, literally in the Greek, not of the letter. Not of the do this and don't do that. Instead, by the way of the Spirit. We are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in old the old way of the written code. One of the things that you'll hear us say around here a lot is grace requires more. We say that because that's what Jesus said, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. He'd say, you've heard that it is written, and He would quote from the law. And He would say, but I say this, He'd say, you heard this, but I say this. And when Jesus would come up with the I say this, 
He was never backing down from the requirement of the law. He was always pushing it further forward. You've heard that it is written this, but I say do more. You've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy. Pray for him. Not by the letter. But by something so much more, by the Spirit of the One who gave the letter. By the Spirit of truth. It is by this that we walk. In John chapter 14... Verses 15 through 17, Jesus said, If you love me, friends, you were going to die. And if he bound you to death with him that you may rise with him, then, friends, you love him. How can you not love one who would do that for you? And so Jesus says this If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for He dwells with you and He will be in you. Jesus tells His apostles, He says, listen, you're not saved yet, but you're going to be. All who are joined with Him in death will be joined with him in the resurrection. You are the elect, boys, it's coming. And the spirit is coming. And he's not just any spirit, he's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit from which all of this truth that is written down by the letter came, and he is the fullness thereof. He will be in you. And because your soul lives through him, so too will your body be joined in a resurrection like His. It is this Spirit by which we live, not in the old way of the letter and dotting the I's and crossing the T's, but the very one from whom the letter came. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You get down to the nitty-gritty with Christ. You get down to the nitty-gritty. I'm not talking about the, the slick sales presentations of, of you know the circuit evangelist. I'm talking about when it's you and God and your guilt and His salvation. When you get right down to it. Not when it's every head bowed, every eye closed. Not, not when it's a formula. But when you get down to you and your Creator. It's always going to come down to Mark chapter 8. Will you die? Will you take up your cross? Will you die? Friends, for any of us who have been there, it is a moment, there is a moment of sheer terror. The flesh doesn't want to die. And it wants to, it wants to cling to any 
shadow of life that it can. Doesn't matter how rational Christ is. Doesn't matter that it makes complete sense. Why why in the world would you why in the world would you try to hold on to something you can't keep? If it would allow you to gain something you can't lose. It's the most rational statement in the world. Let me tell you what, at that moment when it comes time to pick up the cross, the flesh is not rational. It's just not. How in the world can you do it? How how does someone who by their very nature desires only to run after the things of iniquity kill that to run after something that they don't want to run after, which is righteousness? I'm talking practically here. How do you actually do this? Man, let me tell you something, friend. And this right here is where the terror switches to joy unspeakable. When you realize that the fact that you're on your knees begging Him to do something about you, not not to do something about what you've done, to do something about you, you realize that you can die because 2,000 years ago it already happened. That indeed your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That Jesus Christ died once. Not over and over and over and over. Every time someone prays to believe, He died once. And having made propitiation for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God. And at that moment when the grace of God is revealed to you, you say, how can I die? You can do it because you already did it. It's finished. Man, when He said it, He meant it. It wasn't for theatrical effect. When He said it is finished, it was finished. One time to make atonement for all sin, for all His people. Friends, let me tell you something. You ask yourself, how can I die? You can because Jesus already did it. So we can say, along with Paul, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Friends, the Holy Spirit calls you in conviction. No matter how difficult that conviction is, no matter how long your perception 
of the speediness of God is. Know the power of the grace of God to you. When you think to yourself, I cannot do this. Know that He already has. Let terror fade to joy. For if you have been crucified with Him, you will raise with Him. I beseech you, come to Christ. Let's pray.